Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. On Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear two cases that concern whether tech platforms can be held liable for user-generated content, as well as for content that users see because of a platform's algorithm systems. In deciding to hear Gonzalez et al. versus Google and Tamna Mahir et al. versus Twitter, the court will broach the question of whether Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act should be narrowed and whether it still immunizes the owners of websites when they algorithmically recommend third-party content into a user's feed. To learn more about these cases and the potential implications of the court's decisions, I spoke to an expert on internet and tech law. I'm Anupam Chander. I'm a law professor at Georgetown University. Uh, My title is Scott K. Ginsburg, Professor of Law and Technology. I've been teaching internet law for more than 20 years, since the year 2000. And so I've certainly watched Section 230's important role in uh, the creating the internet as we, uh, as we have it today. The 26 words that made the internet, as Jeff Kosef um, has described, and as I described in a, another paper, an earlier paper, how law made Silicon Valley. So one of the critical legs of the stool that makes up the legal framework that facilitates how Silicon Valley operates today. Indeed, it's business model today. So the Supreme Court today has decided uh, apparently to hear uh, two cases that have bearing on Section 230 um, and both regard acts of terrorism. Can you give just the basics for the listener who uh, may not be aware of these two cases? The two cases both arise out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the Court of Appeals on the West Coast of California, the Federal Court of Appeal uh, in the West Coast. They were consolidated together for appeal at the Ninth Circuit. Uh, So one case is the Gonzalez v. Google case, and the other case is the Tomne versus Twitter, T-A-A-M-N-E-H. And I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that. So I apologize in advance if that's a mispronunciation. So it's Tom Ney v. Twitter and Gonzalez v. Google. Both cases arise out of kind of similar and horrible, tragic facts. So Ms. Gonzalez, a 23-year-old U.S. citizen, is killed in terrorist attacks in Paris, France in 2015. Many of Listeners will recall, and I recall vividly, the uh, terrorist attacks in in Paris um, that were staged by three men and maybe others, I'm not sure, but the three men mentioned here in these papers. The Twitter plaintiffs were relatives of someone who was tragically the victim of another terrorist attack, this one in the Raina nightclub in Turkey. So these are people who've been uh, the victims of terrorist attacks or their family members who are bringing claims essentially that Twitter, Google, and Facebook, which I haven't mentioned thus far, are responsible for radicalizing the ISIS members, recruiting them, and helping to them to shape their plan, to plan together, uh, and then to commit these atrocities. In both cases, they're kind of concerned with both the 
platforms sort of ability to algorithmically recommend content, specifically third-party content to kind of put that into a user's feed. And then also, you know, kind of concerned with uh, some of the other affordances of the platforms, particularly in the uh, the case of the, the Tamna suit that looks at uh, particularly whether Google, Twitter, or Facebook um, essentially sort of came to the aid or the benefit of these terrorists by providing them with funds, goods, services. That's right. At this stage, at the Supreme Court of the United States, the critical question is whether or not the algorithmic actions of Google, Facebook, and Twitter now possibly mean that Section 230's liability shield is no longer available. And then in the Twitter case, that they are then culpable. Uh, and this is the, the Twitter case also implicitly uh, invokes the, the Google and, and uh, Facebook defendants as well, implicitly culpable for providing essentially material support to terrorism or actually aiding and abetting terrorism really quite directly. So the algorithmic actions of Google, Facebook, and Twitter are very much in the center stage in these cases. So the first case, the Gonzalez case, is a direct, it raised the direct question about Section 230. The Tomney case the, uh, versus, uh, versus Twitter raises the question of liability under the Anti-Terrorism Act and whether or not algorithmic actions in this context could be a violation of the anti-terror acts. I suppose in our conversation, we'll, we'll focus a, a little bit on Gonzalez versus Google uh, with regard to Section 230 in particular, but how did we get here? What did the lower courts decide and what essentially kind of sparked the curiosity of the Supreme Court to take this on? So the lower courts have actually been largely uniform in their decisions on these issues. Okay. And those decisions, so there have been other cases, there's a similar case out of the Second Circuit called Force v. Facebook, which uh, involves both Israeli citizens, some 20,000 plaintiffs in that case, um, who are uh, affected by terrorism in Israel. Uh, and they are, again, making claims in that case uh, pointed towards Facebook, uh, saying Facebook is uh, essentially creating a terrorist environment in Israel. And they are victims of terror in part because of Facebook. So there's a similar case. Uh, so that Second Circuit case predates the Ninth Circuit opinions in, in this case. And in that case, like in the Ninth Circuit opinions here, um, the courts have uniformly decided that Section 230, as it's currently interpreted, clearly immunizes the internet platforms from liability for these kinds of claims. This is civil action um, that is intending to hold Twitter, Facebook, and Google liable for the speech, for circulating the speech of its users. And that speech in that this case might, as, as is alleged, is ISIS speech. And 230 says you can't be held liable as the publisher of information provided by another user. And so to hold Twitter and Facebook and Google liable in these cases would be to violate this clear 1996 statute passed by Congress in the early days of the internet. But there's some indications that these lower courts think it may be time to kind of reconsider that immunity. Right. So what you're talking about here 
is not the decisions of the courts, but their uh, but various concurrences and uh, dissents even, uh, saying essentially that the courts should reconsider their broad interpretation of Section 230 in these kinds of cases. So in Force v. Facebook, you have Judge Katzman, very, very you know, esteemed judge who recently sadly passed away, who raised this concern in Force v. Facebook in that Second Circuit case. And in This case, you've got all three judges, essentially, uh, you know, the ones writing the majority opinion and uh, concurring and dissenting, all saying, "Mm, maybe, yes, this is the right decision under the interpretations as it currently stands. Our hands are bound. This is is what the interpretation of Section 230 currently is. But they're saying, we don't think it should be this way. Notably, this is a kind of, you know, you've got strong liberals uh, strong progressives or liberals progressive. I don't know what the right term is anymore, but uh, people from the left saying here, no, 230 is too broad and it should be curtailed. At the same time, uh, you've got the Supreme Court. Uh, you've got the most conservative member of the Supreme Court, where one of the most conservative members, uh, it's hard to know exactly, but uh, Justice Thomas for the last few years repeatedly calling for the uh, reconsideration of Section 230 uh, and saying, hey, look, it's, uh, you know, this broad immunity doesn't make sense. We need to narrow that immunity in some way. So uh, the court will have its opportunity to consider this. Um, Do you think that there are any indications of which way this particular court might rule, uh, in particular in the case of, of Gonzalez v. Google? It is very hard to make a prediction. I think we know which way Justice Thomas will go because he's repeatedly called for a narrowing of Section 230. Here is an opportunity for that. But I don't know whether even Justice Thomas sits back and says, hmm, what I'm suggesting, um, <laughs> the ending this kind of immunity in these cases is actually going to harm my friends. And then there's uh, the progressives on the court who are going to say a lot of people calling for narrowing 230, what is it going to do to uh, speech and what speech is allowed online, essentially? And by allowed here, I mean that in the, not in the legal sense, but in the practical sense of companies that say, yeah, I'm going to let that that fly, or I'm going to allow that to be promoted by my algorithm. I'm going to allow that to appear in other people's feeds, which is what I do via algorithm, by automated algorithm, because that's the way we get our newsfeed. There is some algorithm that provides our newsfeed. Even an ABC algorithm, an, an alphabetic algorithm or a chronological algorithm is yet still an algorithm. So it's automated in some way. And so I'm not sure what it means not to be algorithmic for a computer. A computer program is by definition an algorithm. It it takes commands, it processes it according to a certain series of logical instructions and steps and produces various results. So the word algorithm here is so broad. And in fact, these narrow cases, when you start to unpack the implications, suddenly start to envelop the whole internet. So podcast algorithms that are promoting 
particular podcasts, you know, hey, you might be interested in tech policy press because you listen to, you know, this other great uh, strict scrutiny or something like that, right? So this other great, great podcast. I rely upon those all the time, but there's, it's a lot more than those recommendation engines. It is the way that the internet works um, that's at issue. So I think that's going to cause, once the gravity of the changes becomes more material, rather than simply saying things are bad, the Supreme Court has to consider what happens after we act. What will our rulings do to the state of the world as uh, you know uh, after our ruling? And I think that is going to cause some, both on the left and the right, to say, "Hmm, I w- I'm not sure which way I want to go in this because." Yes, I don't think things are great now, but could things actually be worse? And I actually think the pandemic has taught us uh, for many years is that things can actually get worse. You know, we can actually lose more lives in the second year of the pandemic than the first, um, et cetera. So things can get worse. And I think people should be cautious about being unhappy with the state of affairs and assuming that messing with 230 will then fix the internet in whichever direction they feel it should be fixed. So that's a long way to come to, can I predict? Um, I think if I were a betting person, I would probably predict a narrowing of 230. I think that would be unfortunate in this case. And I think it will have negative repercussions for the kind of speech that I'm concerned about. And so, uh, so I actually think that people on the political left with me, progressives like me should be concerned because history's dissidents have mostly been on the progressive side. And that's the speech that has typically been first in in the United States to be potentially subject to legal liability. So I think the legal liability concerns are going to raise lots of red flags. So is this one of the cases then where a lot of activists who are concerned about uh, speech issues and concerned about how the internet works will likely sort of find themselves uh, in league essentially with uh, the corporations in this case um, who, you know, have the same interests essentially? It's going to divide the civil liberties community. You know, you will have the EFFs that will, of course, stand strongly by a free internet. And Section 230 is a key bulwark of a free internet. Now, you will also have um, those who are like, oh, there's too much hate speech online. Uh, And therefore, removing 230 protections will, I think, reduce hate speech, which I think is a really, really important thing to the extent that that hate speech could be criminal or civil liability. Hate speech isn't illegal in the United States, but if that is the kind of speech that might lead to legal liability, in certain cases, it might do that, okay, right? So that's a possibility. But at the same time, lots and lots of claims that relate to 230 are about people. So Facebook is sued left and right by Christian conservatives saying they are being censored. Uh, It's being sued left and right by male supremacists who say they are being censored. And so there's a lot of people out there 
who are going to make claims of censorship. And if you look at the history of these claims, you will see that there is a tremendous amount of uh, legal activity that, that Facebook is suppressing, even though it's legal, that progressives may be interested in keeping off that platform. Let it exist on Parler or Gab, fine. If you, you know, I don't like it, but you know, if it's legal speech, uh, uh, please go ahead, find a platform somewhere else. And I think progressives should be cautious about this because it will lead, I think, to a lot of suppression of uh, the speech of dissidents that we may want to promote. So I think of speech directed against police that says, hey, look, this policeman was harassing me. This policeman beat me up. Is that defamatory? Facebook, Google, Twitter, Reddit, or Wikipedia doesn't know the answer to that question because it doesn't have the investigatory ability to determine whether or not that person actually did those wrongs. So in those cases, better to avoid possible liability and certainly not algorithmically promote that to anyone. So is promoting by hashtag algorithmic uh, amplification when people search for BLM? Well, possibly, right? Uh, you know, so the other obvious example here is the Me Too movement, which depended upon people, brave women largely, who came forward and said they had been sexually harassed and often naming their harasser. That was incredibly difficult and only possible because the platforms weren't going to be liable for a defamation claim from very litigious, very rich men. And so, you know, uh, who, were, who would be absolutely willing to litigate and claim defamation, even though they weren't defamed, because it was actually true. So I think we should be cautious on the left about the kind of speech that is ultimately suppressed. The best example of this, there's a clear example, and I'm just, I really want the progressives left uh, critique to grapple with this directly, which is SESTA-FOSTA. SESTA-FOSTA removed Section 230 protections for illegal sex work, basically. And that has seen you know, I think ultimately uh, been bad for a lot of people. And so um, making sex work far more dangerous really been seen as, I think, not successful. The sex work still happens. Now it just happens in uh, more dangerous ways. If in fact uh, the court does rule in the way that you suspect it might, that it might allow for the sort of that narrowing of the Section 230 immunity, what other dominoes might fall? I mean, do we expect to see, I don't know, might that give Congress the incentive to go ahead and you know, maybe, maybe clarify uh, some issues around 230? You know, that's been a certainly a concern of both Democrats and Republicans on some level over the last couple of years, or, or do you see any other kind of legal implications? And I do see that the companies, you know, are basically saying, uh, I think Google said, you know, this threatens the basic organizational decisions of the modern internet. There appear to be multiple individuals, observers that, that agree with them. So let's begin with Congress. Do I anticipate any possibility of a congressional intervention? 
Congress could moot this case in, in different ways, interpret Section 230 in different ways, et cetera. Um, and we saw that earlier with the Microsoft Ireland case a few years ago, when Congress stepped in with the USA Cloud Act to moot that case. I don't think that's likely in this case, because the simple fact is that the left and the right want irreconcilable things out of Section 230. Um, the right blames Section 230 for suppressing Infowars, for suppressing their flag bearer for the president, Donald J. Trump. So the right has some pretty good arguments there that they've been deplatformed. You know, it's a pretty substantial example that they can point to of various people who have been deplatformed from these sites. And I think too late. I wish they'd been deplatformed earlier, but. You know, frankly, it's kind of hard to deplatform the president. And when Kamala Harris called for Twitter to suspend Donald Trump uh, in 2020 during the primary, many august persons in the media said that was small bore. It was irrelevant. It was inconsequential. And she was making uh, insignificant uh, intervention in speech. Kamala Harris actually had a very sophisticated uh, you know, suggestion. Uh, and so it, I was actually shocked by how she was belittled for that, right? So this is so now people say, oh, they should have been, it's easily, you know, they should have been deplatformed, but there was no one jumping to her defense. In fact, you know, when another presidential candidate was asked about it, they laughed and said, absolutely not. Uh, you know, Donald J. Trump should not be deplatformed from Twitter, or even it was just a call for suspension. So, in any case, the right says our friends are being deplatformed. Unfortunately for the right, their friends are spreading election misinformation, sometimes promoting uh, insurrection against this country. And often, unfortunately, uh, to, be, to be frank, you know, committing hate speech against minorities and women and, uh, and gay people and lots of other groups, okay? On the left, the argument is that these platforms have tolerated the right-wing speech far too much. And we have too much of this hate speech that they are trying to gin up and make us more extreme, make us uh, become right-wing fanatics that are out to uh, hate everyone. Uh, And so they blame the rise of, of a fascist right on social media. And so I don't see how you then come in as Congress and come in with a solution that satisfied both the there's too little speech online because of Section 230 and there's too much speech online because of Section 230. That's, those are irreconcilable positions and it's hard for Congress to intervene in any uh, useful way. So I think the answer is no. I don't think the ramifications along those lines for Congress. I have to say, um, This has huge ramifications for the internet. Search engines are uh, algorithmic amplification of various speech. They promote certain speech online. They find various things that happen in one site and they say, this site is what you want more than this other site. Now, imagine if you're liable for, hey, that search led you to how to do some terrible thing because that is findable online. That makes it very hard to do a search engine. Let's imagine it's even just copyright infringement, how to break DRM. Now am I liable because I taught you how to do, the Google search or the Bing search 
or the, you know, duck, duck, go search, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If those are going to then be actionable because of the search results and search is everywhere. It's not just uh, within by Google, et cetera. Lots of companies do searches on their websites. And if they start promoting things on their own websites, this is this section 230 has been relied upon by companies, large and small, the smallest companies and the largest companies online rely upon section 230. As long as you allow commentators, as long as you allow users to say something, whether it's as simple as commenting on a product and users being as clever as they are, will always use that commentary space to do hilarious things, brilliant things, but also sometimes horrific things. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you about or anything that you feel you you wanted to get across that's important about this particular uh, couple of cases? The Supreme Court in in a case called Reno v. ACLU at the dawn of the internet age said the internet is a forum for true diversity of opinions. And they said from the Balkans to the bulls, this is going to allow speech. And they wanted to make sure in that case that a provision in the statute that 230 is part of didn't harm people's access to the internet. They wanted the internet to flourish. It will be fascinating to see how the Supreme Court returns to this question now. The internet has matured, certainly, uh, but at the same time, it still relies upon that main liability shield every day. And so once that liability shield is lowered for the automated work that it does, which is everywhere. So we have automated spam filters. And you saw the Republicans complaining about spam filters that are you know, removing too much Republican speech, automated news uh, sites, uh, and increasing AI. This is going to mean that those kinds of services become much more complicated to provide because now you have to face lawsuits. And the issue isn't whether or not the lawsuits win, it's that they cost money to defend. And defending against lawsuits means that companies will often settle lawsuits rather than defend them, even if they are uh, not a meritorious claim brought by the plaintiff. So what Section 230 has done is allowed these companies to avoid a ton of lawsuits, companies small and large. Removing 230 protections is going to lead them to be more conservative in an old-fashioned way that is not allowing speech that is potentially risky. And that will include both speech on the right and the left. There's a lot of speech on the left that is legally risky, and we should want to protect online. And so it would be hard to say, oh, it's only the AI or the only algorithmic recommendations, because once that speech is online, it's going to be algorithmically recommended. Uh, So it's not just the algorithm, it's the speech that is very much at stake here. And so the, the way to avoid being liable for algorithmic recommendation is to not allow that speech in the first place. And so that's what's going to happen. You're going to see a lot more um, what I've called disnification of the internet. Everything is happy. Everything is good. You know, no one's doing anything bad. Everything's all coming up roses. A sterilization or a sanitization, perhaps. That's, that would be my concern. Yeah. 
Well, I appreciate you for uh, uh, explaining this to, to me, and uh, I hope that we can come together again and talk about it, perhaps when a little more is known about the timeline or further down the line when perhaps there's the decision. Thanks so much, Justin. It's, I love your pod. It's great. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.